Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Work Suicides Highlight Mental Health Struggle by Ben Eisen. Then Tim Hofer has an article, AOC Redefines the Term Rich. Gregory Zuckerman wrote, Penn Toast Winning Scientist After Shunning Her for Years. Gwyn Guilford has an article, Seniors with Money to Spend Boy Consumer Activity. And we'll follow that up with an article, Science-Based Tips for Healthy Habits by Alex Janin. All of these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Work Suicides Highlight Mental Health Struggle. Greg Beckett tested his girlfriend one Tuesday evening this past January. He was working late. He told her, eat dinner without him. I was told to not leave if possible, he wrote. His girlfriend went about her routine. A few hours later, the 46-year-old Wells Fargo employee jumped to his death from the 14th floor of the bank's Wilmington, Delaware building. He left no note. His final messages betray no obvious signs of distress. His brother, Dave Beckett, said he was gossiping with high school buddies by text messages minutes before his death. Months later, his family and colleagues are still struggling to piece together how things went so wrong. A few hundred people end their lives at work each year, a small but noteworthy number that has mostly risen alongside United States suicide deaths. Many of these acts are violent and shocking. They leave family and colleagues without answers. This has put companies on the front lines of what health officials consider to be a mental health crisis. Nearly 50,000 Americans died by suicide last year, a 2.6% annual increase according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Much of the public remains unaware of mental health resources, such as that 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. The number of workplace suicides fell during the pandemic when people were working from home. But as people returned to the office, there were some high-profile examples. They include a software engineer at Google's New York office in May and an airport worker on a tarmac in San Antonio in June. Thomas H. Lee, a private equity investor, died by a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his office in February. Workplace suicides have also taken place over the past decade at banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America. Employers, especially in September, Suicide Prevention Month, have increasingly urged workers to look out for signs that their peers are struggling. But the signs someone is struggling suicide is considering suicide can be subtle, and the reasons elusive. Some people might end their lives at work to spare their loved ones from having to discover the body. Others might do so to send a message about how they felt they were mistreated at work, said Larry Barton, 
a behavioral scientist who works with companies in the wake of workplace suicides. He said calls to his practice from companies working through mental health challenges or suicides are up by a third so far this year. Companies face a wrenching task in responding. Executives must demonstrate compassion for workers and the victim's family without broadcasting too much detail on how the person died, Barton said. Workers' personal matters are typically referred to the company's employee assistance programs. We're deeply saddened by the loss of our colleague, a spokeswoman for Wells Fargo said in a statement for this article. Greg was a valued member of our team. As we all know, it's virtually impossible to identify a reason when a tragedy like this occurs. There is nothing more important to all of us at Wells Fargo than our colleagues' well-being. Dave Beckett, 54, said he was surprised no senior executives represented Wells Fargo at his brother's memorial service. Some of Greg Beckett's colleagues attended. Wells Fargo sent flowers. When a human resources worker contacted Dave Beckett with information about his brother's life insurance and where to send his last paycheck, she hadn't been briefed on how he died. When Dave Beckett informed her, she gasped and quickly ended the call, he said. He had personal accountability to that place, and that place had no accountability to him, Dave Beckett said. Wells Fargo, which has been nudging workers back to the office, told its Wilmington-based employees that they didn't need to be in the office the week after Greg Beckett's death. It paused monitoring of those swiping their badges to enter the building, but the memo saying so didn't go out until workers were already coming in, people familiar with the matter said. On the way into the building on the Monday of that week, workers noticed the conference room window he had jumped from was boarded up. Scott Powell, the chief operating officer at Wells Fargo, said that the bank's top executives were made aware of Greg Beckett's death and that the company communicated with employees about it. Senior human resources people were on site to meet with employees. At a company-wide meeting in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, Chief Executive Charlie Scarf spoke about managing work stress and mental health. He relayed personal stories and talked about the importance of open communication. Greg Beckett worked on Wells Fargo internal controls, which are meant to protect the bank from risk. It is in the middle of an intensive effort to revamp them. In the fall of last year, hours got longer for him and his colleagues. Around mid-December, he became more noticeably stressed, his loved ones said. Sometimes he would break for dinner and then log back in. He took meetings as late as 11 p.m. One planning call would be interrupted by instant messages telling him to hop to another and another, Greg Beckett told his brother a few weeks before his death. After his death, a manager in another group working on controls wrote to his team saying that Greg Beckett had been working on a number of high-importance, high-stress projects at work for an extended period of time. He noted the importance of managing that stress, writing, If we don't find healthy ways to address it, there will be negative consequences of one form or another. Greg Beckett's life outside of work seemed to be going well, Dave Beckett said. 
He had recently moved in with Giovanna Maracca, his girlfriend of a year, and her daughters. They accompanied him to his family's Christmas Eve dinner for the first time. His Philadelphia Eagles were having a strong football season and went on to the Super Bowl. When they played at home, Greg Beckett and a group of friends tailgated outside the stadium, each time in the same grassy spot. Out of superstition, he wore the same sneakers, socks, jeans, and jersey. Greg Beckett doted on his dog, which he sometimes held like an infant with his hands under her bottom and her head resting on his shoulder. He once dressed up in a Barney costume in 100-degree heat for his niece's second birthday party. He texted his friend's spouses about the Real Housewives' latest dramas. He stopped by his parents' house to mow their lawn and take out their trash each week. He and Maraca had been part of the same group of friends for years, but only became romantically involved later in life. They talked about getting married. On the night of this past January 19th, Greg Beckett stopped responding to text messages and phone calls from Maraca and his family. He was supposed to pick up his dog from his parents and wasn't answering questions about when he would be there. They worried he might have been in a car accident. His brother and sister-in-law drove to his office at around 10 p.m. to try and find his car. They found police blocking off the parking lot. Greg Beckett's Eagles jersey was still at the dry cleaner in preparation for that weekend's divisional playoff game. It would be displayed at his memorial service held the following week. And now AOC redefines the term rich. New York socialists calling for higher taxes aim to spread the tax net far beyond Wall Street, scooping up folks on Main Street, especially in the suburbs. Bemoaning violent budget cuts at New York City agencies Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her ideological allies are calling on the city and state to fund resources for all New Yorkers by raising taxes on the top 5% of New Yorkers. Considering the left's prior focus on the 1%, this is a major development. The top 1% of New Yorkers begins just south of $1 million in adjusted gross income. But the top 5% begins a little above 250000 translating into married couples making 127000 each. More than 168,000 New York state and local government employees were paid more than $127,000 last year. Forty-five New York school districts paid most of their teachers and administrators at least that much, and about 70 police or fire departments had mean pay above that line. The move from targeting the top 1% to the top 5% is a recognition that the socialist program, to borrow from Margaret Thatcher, risks running out of other people's money. New York's finance-linked tax base is especially fragile. Because the state's coffers depend on volatile investment-related income, Receipts fluctuate with markets and capital gains. A further vulnerability for the state's tax system is that the explosion of remote work has employees less geographically tethered to New York. 
An hour-long drive to Connecticut can let a Manhattanite slice his state income tax bill in half, while a willingness to decamp to Florida, New Hampshire, or Tennessee can eliminate it. Tax migration data indicate that more high earners left in 2021 than in 2019 to Ron DeSantis' delight. Years of making the tax code more progressive means the top 1% of filers account for 46% of state income tax liability. The top 5% share is 64%. Accepting socialist premises about needing more money, targeting the 5% makes sense. Fully a resident New York households and individuals earning between $250,000 and $5 million together have considerably more taxable income, $583 billion, than those making $5 million or more, $435 billion. But the socialist premises can't be accepted. New York has the nation's highest spending K-12 public school system, but student outcomes are middling. The state spends more on Medicaid than Texas and Florida combined. New York agencies also pay some of the world's highest prices for infrastructure. More hasn't been, nor will ever be, enough. Governor Kathy Hochul has thus far resisted this and other calls for economically destructive tax hikes, even as she grapples with looming budget shortfalls. And while New Yorkers haven't widely objected to pass calls to tax the rich, that may change now that so many have been invited into the category. And now Penn toasts winning scientist after shunning her for years. The University of Pennsylvania is basking in the glow of two researchers who just recently were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine for their pioneering work on messenger RNA. Until recently, the school and its faculty largely disdained one of those scientists. Penn demoted Catalin Karinko, shunting her to a lab on the outskirts of campus while cutting her pay. Karinko colleagues denigrated her mRNA research, and some wouldn't work with her, according to her and people at the school. Eventually, Carrico persuaded another Penn researcher, Drew Weissman, to work with her on modifying mRNA for vaccines and drugs, though most others at the school remained skeptical, pushing other approaches. Carrico hasn't only proved her detractors wrong, but also reached the pinnacle of science. Her research with Weissman helped lead to the mRNA vaccines that protected people worldwide during the COVID-19 pandemic and now shows promise for flu, cancer, and other diseases. Penn, which patented their mRNA technology, has made millions of dollars from drug makers that licensed it. And when Carrico and Weissman were awarded the Nobel, on top of prestigious science prizes in recent years, the school expressed a different perspective on their work. The reversal offers a glimpse of the clubby, hothouse world of academia and science, where winning financial funding is a constant burden, securing publication is a frustrating challenge, and those with unconventional or ambitious approaches can struggle to gain support and acceptance.
It's a flawed system, said David Langer, who was chair of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital, spent 18 years studying it, working at Penn, and was Carrico's student and collaborator. Penn wasn't the only institution to doubt Carrico's belief in mRNA when many other scientists pursued a different gene-based technology. In a reflection of, her rat- of how radical her ideas were at the time, she had difficulty publishing her research and obtaining big grants. Another reason her relationship with the school frayed. Carrico could antagonize colleagues. In presentations, she often was the first to point out mistakes in their work. Carrico didn't intend to offend. She just felt the need to call out mistakes, she later said. A native of Hungary, Carrico came to the university in 1989 as a research assistant professor in the cardiology department of the medical school. Her job, which wasn't a tenure-track position, was to do research and deliver lectures for graduate students. Carrico was thrilled at the chance to pursue her mRNA research and became a friendly presence in the department. Yet she felt like something of a second-class citizen. Once, she was reprimanded for using deionized water belonging to a senior member of her lab rather than climb five flights of stairs to get some from a different laboratory, she later recalled. After long days in the lab, Carrico returned home to write grant applications proposing to use mRNA to develop various treatments. She rarely found success. Reviewers sometimes questioned her proposals, noting her title at the school. Penn professors and others had good reasons for their skepticism. Most everyone else was becoming enamored with using DNA, a different molecule. DNA has two strands of nucleotides that wind around each other like a twisted ladder, making it durable. By contrast, mRNA is single-stranded and notoriously unstable and hard to work with. To Carrico, mRNA was the perfect molecule. It only needed to get inside the cell's walls to create proteins, not all the way into the nucleus, like DNA. In 1995, after Carrico turned 40, she received an ultimatum, leave Penn or agree to a demotion. Carrico accepted a new lower-paid position. It left her feeling liberated, she later said, while giving her time to keep improving her mRNA techniques. Then she and Weissman achieved a breakthrough. They modified the base components or nucleosides of mRNA to avert an inflammatory response. Now, the molecule could get into cells to create ample proteins, the key to producing vaccines and drugs. Penn patented their mRNA technology. Carrico and Weissman tried to license it for their biotech company, but could not afford the price the school demanded, Weissman recalled. Penn eventually licensed to another company. During the past few years, Penn made tens of millions of dollars licensing the technology to various companies, including BioNTech and Moderna, that produced COVID vaccines. Today, Carrico is an adjunct professor in the school's Department of Neurosurgery. Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman are brilliant researchers who represent the epitome of scientific inspiration and determination, Penn's president, Liz Miguel, said after the awards. Now, seniors with money to spend 
boy, consumer activity. Why has consumer spending proved so resilient as the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates? An important and little appreciated reason, consumers are getting older. In August, 17.7% of the population was 65 or older, according to the Census Bureau, the highest on record going back to 1920 and up sharply from just 13% in 2010. The elderly aren't just more numerous, their finances are relatively healthy, and they have less need to borrow, such as to buy a house, and are less at risk of layoffs than other consumers. This has made the elderly a spending force to be reckoned with. Americans 65 and up accounted for 22% of spending last year, the highest share since records began in 1972, and up from 15% in 2010, according to a Labor Department survey of consumer expenditures. These are the consumers that will matter over the coming years, said Susan Stern, chief economist at Economic Analysis Associates. Our large share of older consumers provides a consumption base in times like today when job growth slows, interest rates rise, and student debt loan repayments begin again, she said. Seniors' high spending propensities reflect health, wealth, and perhaps lingering psychological effects of the pandemic. All my life it was, save for this, save for that, said Maureen Green, 66, of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Now there's money in the bank, and I'm spending it in ways that bring me closer to friends and family than I did before. Green, a real estate agent with four grown kids living across the country, estimated she is spending 25% more and twice as much time traveling now compared with 2019. The one million Americans who didn't survive COVID, that's part of it. That taught me not to let time go by because before I know it, that time won't be there anymore, she said. The lifestyle of the senior has changed dramatically. They're more active than ever, said Marshall Cohn, chief retail advisor at Circana a research firm specializing in consumer behavior. That has expanded the menu of recreation on which to spend, he said. The average household led by someone 65 and older spent 2.7% more last year than in 2021 adjusted for inflation, according to the Labor Department, compared with 0.7% for under 65 households. Spending by older households is up 34.5% from 1982, compared with 16.5% for younger households. Comparable data isn't available for 2023. However, consumers older than 60 reported spending 7.9% more in August than a year earlier, compared with a 5.1% increase among those aged 40 to 60, and a 4.6% gain for younger consumers, according to a New York survey done by the New York Fed. The data aren't adjusted for inflation. The growing yen to spend by the elderly is amplified by their sheer numbers. The unusually large cohort of baby boomers, the youngest of which are 59, are reaching their retirement years. Another factor in the elderly's favor, relatively strong finances. Americans 70 and older now hold nearly 26% of household wealth, the highest since records began in 1989, according to the Federal Reserves. 
While economists still see a relatively high probability of recession in the coming year, Ed Yernardi, president and chief investment strategist of Yernardi Research, isn't one of them. An important reason, by the Fed's reckoning, baby boomers alone have now amassed $77.1 trillion in wealth. There's a $77 trillion wide hole in the theory that consumers running out of pandemic savings will sink the economy, Yardini said. They have less consumer debt, minimal student debt, and are more likely to own their their homes outright. Many of those who have mortgages refinance at the unprecedented low in mortgage rates after the pandemic hit. They are also less likely to need to move due to an expanding family or a new job than Generation Z and Millennials, shielding them from the impact of rising housing costs. Retirees also received an 8.7% cost-of-living adjustment bump to Social Security payments in January, the largest single-year increase since 1981, and an automatic adjustment to offset last year's 9.1% inflation peak. These factors have cushioned seniors from the twin scrounges of inflation and high interest rates. And because most of them are retired, senior spending is less vulnerable to the rise in unemployment that many economists do anticipate in coming quarters. And let's follow that up with Alex Janin's article, Science-Based Tips for Healthy Habits. Any healthy choice seems doable for a day. Building consistent good habits around exercise, sleep, and nutrition in the long term is harder. Recent research is uncovering how long it takes to cement different kinds of habits and gives fresh insight into how to make them stick. Simple health habits like hand washing, for instance, take a couple of weeks to develop, while more complicated ones like going to the gym take four to seven months, according to a recent study. You can't mindlessly go to the gym the way you mindlessly shampoo your hair, says Katie Milkman, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School and co-author of the study, which was published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. One big lesson if you're trying to establish a new healthy habit. You have better luck if you can simplify the process and repeat it often. Finding ways to make it fun and setting realistic expectations about how long it will take to establish the habit will help, too, other researchers found. Cheryl A. Johnson struggled for decades to keep a consistent exercise routine before she moved to Greenville, North Carolina and invested in a swimming pool. She estimates it took more than a year to adopt a regular swimming routine after the pool was installed, working on breathing techniques and getting over the fear of putting her face in the water. Now, she has been swimming consistently for seven years. I learned that if you don't give yourself grace, you feel like you're failing every day, says Johnson, 63-year-old. Here are some of the best science-backed strategies that can help you build healthy habits more efficiently. Simplify and repeat. A landmark 2009 study by researchers in the United Kingdom found that simple health habits, such as eating a piece of fruit with lunch or running for 15 minutes before dinner, took an average of 66 days to form. 
Two or three months is a safe bet on average, behavioral researchers say, but the more complex the behavior, the more difficult it is going to be to put on autopilot. Habits likely develop more quickly the more often they are repeated, says Milkman, and lessening your decision-making helps too. If you are going to go to the gym regularly, reduce the amount of time and effort required by incorporating it into your work commute. That could mean choosing a gym between your home and workplace and keeping a bag with clean workout clothes in the back of your car, says Wendy Wood, a professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California, whose research focuses on habit formation. Eliminating the chances of making decisions that could tempt you from your desired path can be helpful. If you want to cook healthier meals, fill your fridge with fresh produce. If you want to stop dome scrolling at night, ditch the charging cable next to your bed and replace it with a good book. For those hoping to use social media less, keeping Facebook and Instagram apps on their phone's home screen is akin to having an open bag of Skittles in your pocket at any given time, says Brad Stolberg, an adjunct professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and an executive coach. Plan, but be flexible. Repetition and planning are essential tools in developing habits efficiently, behavioral researchers say. But rigidity can make follow-through harder in the long run. When a team of researchers conducted a study of gym-goers who were paid to work out on a consistent schedule versus a variable schedule, they were surprised to find those with more variable schedules went to the gym more overall once the payment stopped, said Milkman, who co-wrote the study. Those participants had backup plans, such as going to the gym in the evening if they missed the morning slot. The lesson, she says, is to avoid a rigid 7 a.m. or bus schedule that doesn't allow for different ways to achieve your habit if your original plan falls through. Expect to feel worse at first. We expect healthy habits to make us feel better, more energetic, sated, stronger, or calmer, but those feelings don't often come right away. Starting a new behavior, such as cutting out screen time before bed or exercising before work, prompts the body and brain to cycle through a state of order, disorder, and reorder, known as allostasis, says the University of Michigan Stolberg. This is what leads us to feel worse before we feel better, he says. Starting a new gym habit, for example, might lead to muscle soreness, hunger, and fatigue before we start to feel the benefits and adapt to the new routine. If you don't expect it to be hard, then when it is hard, you freak out and you quit, says Stolberg. Make it fun. If the habit itself isn't enjoyable, finding other ways to make it fun can help make the habit stick, researchers suggest. Wood, the USC professor, enjoys trashy novels, but only allows herself to read them when she is working out on her elliptical machine. Milkman calls this strategy temptation bundling or encouraging an action by letting yourself enjoy something only while doing it. Think about the long-term value of a habit often does little to motivate us at present, she says. We should spend more time focusing on the instant gratification we get from activities we want to put on autopilot, she says. It needs to be rewarding in the moment. That brings us to the end of today's articles. 
I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.